Key Aero, your aviation destination. Historic Aviation. Hello and uh, welcome to the Fly Pass podcast. For this episode, we're doing something a little bit different. We're talking to some owners of a very unique bed and breakfast experience. We're talking to Claire Nugent and Nigel Mortar. Hello. 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 Okay, so as I say, we're talking to you about your bed and breakfast, but it's not just any bed and breakfast. It's something a little bit different. Do you want to tell us a bit more about it? Well, our bed and breakfast is uh, something we have put inside a Second World War control tower. So it was something that we found online about 10 years ago. Yeah. And we fell in love with the idea immediately. We had been looking for an airfield building for quite a while, but this one came up in the perfect location. And... Uh, we set about trying to buy it and then spent about three years renovating it, getting it ready to become a bed and breakfast. So we always knew we wanted it to be a B&B. So how did you find it? I mean, where was it just listed on a specific website for old buildings or? Well, it's kind of a funny story, really, because as Claire said, we've been looking for an airfield building. We actually wanted a 1943 operations block, as almost everyone does in my experience. <laughs> and uh, we'd seen one in a field in Cambridgeshire. It's on the old um, Steeple Morden airfield. And we fell in love with its design, which is what drew us to airfield architecture, you see. And we tried to find one for the next seven years. And we asked a number of different farmers who didn't want to sell it to what they, I assume, considered idiots from London. So we, um, we decided we might have to broaden our search. I was quite reluctant to do this. By this time, I kind of fallen in love with the whole idea of particularly an airfield building. But I had a really rubbish day at work one day and I was coming home on the train thinking there must be more to life than this. And I got home and I just uh, sat down at the computer and Claire was working in a different room. I sat down in front of our computer and I searched control towers for sale on the computer and it popped up just like that. And it was for sale, it had been for sale for 16 months in a local WH Brown in Norfolk. And so I called Claire over quite kind of... Um, a little yeah but very excitedly and uh because i saw it we never thought we could afford a control tower i saw it we could afford it and i think we more or less in our heads bought it there and then without seeing it yeah um but it took us two weeks to get here to get up to see it yeah but it was it was a bit of an ugly duckling when we bought it 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 was a house and had been in use since the war but it had many uses and there'd been a pitch roof added onto it and cedar shingles put on the outside and some of the main windows had been blocked up. And yeah, I could see why it had been on the market for quite a long time because it, um, it didn't look like a control tower anymore. And it didn't look like a normal house either. So it was a bit, bit, bit peculiar. Falling between stools. Yeah. So we spent, the, as I said, three years renovating it and now it very much looks like a control tower again. It's very recognisable as one of the most standard design control towers they were built all over the place during the Second World War. For all commands. I suppose the fact that somebody converted it into a house has kept it from becoming a derelict building and then, you know, you'd have ended up spending a lot, lot more money trying to restore it. Absolutely. Well, that, that was the thing. When everything we've been looking at was a derelict building and we kind of prepared ourselves for a derelict building. And finding something, even though it altered, just seemed like a really easy ask to us. It you already know? had running water. Yeah, and, and electricity. And a roof and, and windows. And, <laughs> and I, I, I think it, it's a funny thing because... We couldn't really understand why other people didn't see it because people were buying derelict control towers, but they weren't buying this one. And it was it was a bit odd. <laughs> but I think it's because it really didn't look like one anymore. It really looked like a very, well, I always kind of say it looked a bit like a Swiss chalet, a really poor in, impersonation of a Swiss yeah, chalet, if I'm honest. Cream and brown with yeah. shallow pitch roof. It just, yeah, it looked, it looked awful. Yeah. 
but everything people have done to it, to be fair, it kept it, you know, watertight and dry. So it preserved the building. So even though it might not have been aesthetically pleasing to us, it actually helped the preservation of the building. So it made our job far easier. And I suppose it's a certain kind of mindset for somebody who wants to live in a World War II control tower. It's not the sort of average house that most people go looking for. Can I hear a critical tone in your voice then? <laughs> <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Well, we were a bit worried as well. So we set about buying the control tower because we loved the aesthetic. We loved the design and we, you know, modernist, chunky buildings of our thing. And then we decided that we would create a and b with rooms that were in our deco style. So it looked on the inside, how it felt on the outside. So this kind of marriage between the inside and the outside of the building, rather than making it all modern inside. Plus, that, you know, it's the design side of things that we really love. And then we opened, the, well, we're about to open the bed and breakfast and we were slightly worried that not anybody else would love that idea yeah. <laughs> of coming to stay in a control tower with, you know, a pink Art Deco roll-top bath and that, that sort of thing. But thankfully, what we have found now that we've been running the business for seven, seven years. years is there's quite a lot of airfield love out there. There's so many people who come with an interest in aviation or the love of airfield buildings like us. So, yeah, so people have come from, you know, wandering around disused airfields for years and now finally get to stay in a control tower. There's, we get a lot of very excited guests, which is fantastic for us. <laughs> it's really lovely yeah. to be able to share that. It's funny you mentioned the pink bath because that's the first thing my girlfriend commented on when I showed her the photo. <laughs> <laughs> so is that the room you're going to stay in when you come and stay? <laughs> I'd love to stop in that. Yeah, it looks amazing. I mean, so... When was your control tower built? What year was it actually an active airfield? When did it was, start? Well, it's built during 42 to 43 when most of the airfields were built because the Air Ministry, I'm sure you know, built 444 of these airfields during the war. And most of them were built between 42 and 43. In fact, they were opening one every three days in 42. And so ours was part of that program of construction. But it didn't open very quickly. <clears throat> it was built originally for Bomber Command, but... Um, what happened was Bomber Commander kind of moved their emphasis further up north by the time this became operational. It was then offered to the Americans, but they were further south. So it sat uncomfortably in this kind of no man's land and no one really wanted it. And so at the time, the RAF 100 group was being formed and they decided to cluster all the RAF 100 group stations all along North Norfolk. And they, of course, were the forerunner of electronic countermeasures, electronic warfare, and that's what they did here. So the station only actually formally opened on May the 1st, 1944, and it became actually operational in support of D-Day. So it was very late. So it's actually only operational for 11 months, and it jammed radar, but those 11 months were absolutely critical, of course. How much of the actual airfield still survives around you? Uh, That's a surprising amount, actually. Yeah, Um, considering it went out of use almost immediately after the war, and then it completely went out of MOD possession by... 47 and there is incredible amounts that are still surviving the three hangars are still in use and various different uses but they're still here the control tower obviously but um we've got some neighboring buildings that are all being converted into houses and then there's some romney sheds and parachute stores the old cinema projection house is still standing synthetic Um, trainers are still there yeah there's a lot the technical site is a very good survival here and there's also in terms of the airfield itself Almost all the peri-track is still here. Mm. And the two and three runways, the entire length is still there, but they're reduced width. And the number three, it's got about... what? No, the number one runway. Yeah, number one, yeah. sorry. Yeah, it's about a fifth of it is yeah. still 
extent. You but... still get the feeling out on, yeah. on on the airfields of the runways. And if you look at from Google Earth, you can still see the, the impression. The, the impression of the A is very clearly marked out on the still. But for the technical side, to, because Norfolk, well, particularly this airfield, is split between two estates. You've got Holcombe Estate and Walsingham Estate. And with this bit of tiny bit of freehold land, it's squashed between these two estates. And um, Walsingham Estate found uses for most of the technical site immediately after the war. So they started renting them out, which has preserved them, of course. And Holcomb did the same with the hangars. They found uses for them. And a business that set up drying grass in another hangar preserved that hangar. And they had the control towers there. The director used to live in it. And the rest of the, our neighbours' buildings were where workers used to live, you see. So there's an interest in conserving it all. And that's why the survival is so good. And it's remarkable, really, it's survival. The rest of the sites, you go further down the dispersed sites, they're covered by woodland. And there's buildings dotted around them, but the survival rate is far worse. And that's because after the war, it became a squat, as so many airfields did. In 1946, there was 40,000 people squatting in Britain on airfield sites. And um, this was one of them. And it was squatted until, we think, 1958. And we met some few people that were born on the squats. It's a yeah. fascinating story. But um, after they moved the people in the squats into housing around, they built some council housing for them and stuff and accommodated them in other areas. Most of those dispersed sites were systematically demolished, assumed to avoid a return of any people living in them again. So the survival rate out there isn't so good. But the rest of it is remarkable. Yeah. Actually remarkable. So if someone wanted to come have a nose around an airfield, it's a really good place to actually come and have a look because it sounds like there's an awful lot. Well, yes and no. Yes and no, yeah. <laughs> Most of what survives is on private land. Yeah. So um, there is a public footpath that runs across the airfield so you can get access across the old runways. And we are working with one of the local landowners particularly on getting a bit of access to the important buildings that survive the synthetic trainers because they're quite near the main road. So it wouldn't take much access to allow people to go and view them and we're hoping to try and get them a bit more shored up because, you know, they're 75 years old now and in need of a bit of love, a bit of TLC. And they're remarkably good, but they need some repair to the roof and a bit of re-rendering. Just to keep them yeah. to keep them going. And so we're keen for the public to have access to that. And the estate are very comfortable with that idea of putting in some permissive paths to both the synthetic yeah. trainers and beyond to the administration side. So we, we're looking at doing a circular walk around them. And the other thing they're quite keen to do, which they've told me they're quite keen to do, not ask me, they told me, um, <laughs> is that I should go and do guided tours of the sites. So do a much wider tour to different dispersed sites and take people around to see them. So that's something we're looking at doing, you know, once. So they, they're becoming more accessible. They are. Yeah. But yeah. sadly, they're... at the moment, it's mostly private land, though, yeah. so. Which is amazing in itself, because when you think about the historical significance of an airfield, and there's not an awful lot left these days that people can actually go and have a look around. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of it's difficult though, isn't it? Because you know they were, you know, requisitioned of private landlords, weren't they? And then sold back to them after the war in most cases, unless they were kept. And you know they were huge things. You know this airfield covered nearly 800 acres, so you know to to have all that accessible is quite a demand, isn't it? And it's kind of I mean, I spoke to English Heritage about it, about conservation of airfields, and they, they were telling me they really don't know what to do because the sites are so large that the idea of conserving one of these Class A heavy bomber stations is, you know, it just, it's just not feasible because it's such a large area of land. And so you, what they're thinking of doing is conserving sites that are very well preserved all around the country and having those accessible and saying this is a good place to see a technical site and this is a good place to see a 
Commonall site, you know, a Barrett Block site, or and this is a good place to see an admin site, and doing it that way because I don't think they'll ever get one that they can do. But in the in the ten years that we've been here, well, we've been champing at the bit to try and get this airfield more known because when we first moved in, people didn't know there was a control tower here, even though we're next to the road. It had been shielded by Leylandii, and um, so we wanted to strip all that back so it was visible again. But also because we also decided then that we wanted to do something to commemorate those that served here. We started working on the a memorial project. There's a main road that runs all the way through the old airfield site. And lots of people who lived here didn't know that the hangars were hangars. They thought they were, you know, agricultural sheds and that the Nissen huts and the Romney sheds where people have garages and things, that they were just agricultural buildings. And so we, we've been rattling, <laughs> rattling on about it for quite a while. We have, yeah. But I have noticed in the time when we started talking about it to, you know, more recently, there, there's been a sea change in interest. And so when we started fundraising for the memorial, we thought, you know, it would be a bit of a battle to talk, you know, to get people involved and get people because we couldn't do it all by ourselves. And it was incredible. Mm. There's this huge interest. And I think it's because the Second World War is now starting, we're starting to run out of living memory. And I think there's a huge surge of people want, wishing they'd asked older relatives about things and uh, found out more about what their uncle or great uncle or granddad did. And I think because of that, things like the two local landowners who own, own this airfield suddenly, so it's really piqued their interest um, about what it is they have on their land and they're actively trying to do things about I mean, they've told us things. they used to consider it, you know, just nothing. They didn't really consider it. And so now they consider it as an asset, which is a huge step forward for the airfield. It means the conservation is far more likely, you know, and and we, we were very keen when we started the fundraising because it was, it was a substantial sum in the first instance. We were looking for 30 grand, you see, and it, it quite rapidly rose, you know, <laughs> as our ambitions rose a little. And um, now we ended up raising, I think it's about around 55,000. We, we were quite keen that um, we didn't do that from the airfield community, that we actually did it from the community around about us, that we went out and reached out to the local people because we wanted to make it, feel very much like theirs, that they were contributing to this. It was part of their cultural heritage. It wasn't just, you know, kind of people that were interested in this. It's actually all of ours. It's, it belongs to all of us, and that memory should be all of ours. And so it was something we were very keen to do is to keep reaching out to local communities, and they really responded. It was amazing. And, you know, the, the different people we had coming to talks, we never thought that would happen, did we? No, it was fantastic. It was extraordinary, yeah, really extraordinary. So Nigel's done quite a lot of, um, as part of the, the fundraising activities, he did history talks about the airfields. And we went to um, WIs and um, pensioner groups, as well as going to pubs and making a bit more fun and having jazz nights and that kind of thing. But we met constantly kept meeting people who worked up here when it was, um, when it was being built. So uh, a, a woman who must be in her early 90s now. She worked in the, the NAFI. Mm. Uh, she peeled a lot of potatoes. <laughs> that was her main job. And she was about 14 when 15, she was 15. Yeah. She used to cycle to the airfield from Wells next to sea. And, and so what, what we really wanted to try to achieve with the memorial was about it would be everybody who worked here. It wasn't just those who flew, but it was also everybody who worked on, you know, from the NAFI to the WAFs and the ground crews and the people who delivered the bread. Yeah. <laughs> And including the people that built it as well, because a lot of locals built it. Because yeah. well, it was mostly built by Irish labour, but a lot of locals worked on it as well. So we, there's women bricklayers up here, which mm. you know should be celebrated, and 
women work in cement mixes, very large cement mixes, as well as other on-skilled trades up here. They recruited people that were either side of um, the uh, conscription age. So people under 18 would work up here and people over 41 would work up here. And, uh, you know, we'd spoken, still lives in Wales now. He drove trucks here when he was um, 17. He used to drive trucks delivering aggregate from the pit where they got it out to all the different airfield sites around here and commonly onto North Creek. And he was on £12 a week. Um, and he was doing 12 hours a day and he was on 12 quid a week. And his dad, who was an engine driver on the mainline trains, was earning six. So, you know, you can imagine a breakfast table, can't you? It would have been a bit of friction. <laughs> but it's amazing. You, you can't get those kind of stories from anyone else, you know. And it's those kind of stories that the history books don't really record. And it's that kind of stuff that we're really fascinated by. It's the day-to-day, you know, as, as well as the big history of the place, but the day-to-day detail of what the people did, how they lived, where they went, where they drank why they drank in those places. We met, um, and we're still very close, uh, a veteran called Bernie Howe, and he used to drink, in a, as he said, with all his crewmates and other crews, used to go to a pub that was four miles away. Now, the nearest pub is two, and we'd heard about this pub called the Mucky Duck in, in the creeks. The Black, uh, Black Swan, it was called. They used to call it the Mucky Duck. It's called the Black Swan. And we, we wondered why they always went down there. I mean, why travel four miles when you can walk two, you know? And we asked him, and he kind of smiled, and there was a glint in his eye, and he said, well, the Women's Land Army had a station next door. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and you just don't hear that in books, do you? Well, that's it. I, I suppose as well, what you're doing is, is sort of, they say you're capturing the local story, but also giving back a little bit of local pride, because it was a joint, a huge war effort, wasn't it? Everybody was involved in some capacity in the area. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's a lovely way of seeing it, and yeah. I've never actually thought of that before, really, but it is about giving pride back to the area because this has been, you know, kind of neglected area really up here in terms of its cultural memory, and and it's now coming back alive. Yeah. And the numbers of people we see around the memorial is is really really heartening. You know, it's almost every time we pass, there's yeah, somebody there's you know, take, taking a photograph or yeah. reading the Royal of Honor. Or... Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I, I know that whenever I see a, a memorial like that in the middle of nowhere, I have to stop and have a little read of it. But I've been to Wales and Holcombe loads of times, and I'd never heard of your place until it was sort of put to me by the editor. And I was like, actually, that sounds really interesting. And then looking at what you've done is amazing. I mean, did you find English heritage were a help or a hindrance when you said what you were going to do? Did they involved in any way? Well, English heritage, because it's never been listed, this site. So in those terms, they weren't very interested. But we did Heritage Open Days a lot when we first opened. So about the first four years we were here. We did Heritage Open Days. So to start that process of uh, engagement with, engagement local, with, local, it, with people. local people and, to, you know, and you know, it sounds like we're being very honourable. We also wanted to find out as much as we could, of course. And they're the best people to find out from. And the stories we heard were brilliant. So that kind of engagement, English Heritage gave us the formula for doing that, you know, and the process for doing that. And when we were doing Heritage Open Days, they were really incredibly supportive. And we went to some functions in London with them, didn't they? And they were, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and they were very pleased. English Heritage generally were very pleased about how we'd restored the tower when it was finished, and they, it was mentioned in one of their annual reports. So you know, kind of, they were sort of indirectly supportive. There was no cash involved. <laughs> <laughs> More to the pity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if only. Exactly. But yeah, but it's still not listed. It seems very hard to get buildings listed these days. English heritage, you know, like everyone else, their finances have been cut and they struggle a bit. Yeah, I mean, I think generally they've been, they've been supportive. Yeah. They're a supportive organisation. 
I mean, no reason why they wouldn't be. You look at what you've done to the exterior of the building. It looks like a World War Two control tower, doesn't it? You know, yeah. the windows and everything like that. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit shiny white, though. I don't yeah. think they would have had so many shiny white ones anymore. Yeah. But yeah, we tried to make it as authentic as possible while still having to, you know, so the front door is in a different location because somebody else chose to do that. And we thought that's actually quite useful to have it there. So we'll keep that. <laughs> so, But we've tried to be as original as we can, yeah. particularly with things like the windows. Putting the cradle style windows back in made such a huge amount of difference. And reopening some of the openings that have been blocked, some of the windows that have been blocked up. Yeah, that made a huge visual impact That's to make it look like a control tower again. It's it's a kind of fine line, really, because it has to function as a comfortable home and B&B as well, you know. And, and so it can't be incredibly austere because people might come once, but they might not come again. So we, we had to make it, you know, luxurious in the Art Deco style as well. So... You know, there's compromises, but what we were lucky with was that when we moved here, because it had been a house so long, that other people had made all the decisions to make it a functioning space, if you know what I mean. So it worked as as different rooms. Well, than a series of offices. Yeah, and while we reversed some of their decisions that took away the character of the building, we could do it quite guilt-free, you see, because if it had been a derelict control tower, utterly original, when we came through the door... We would have had loads of lavatories, you know, it, it downstairs. And, of course, the attraction of a load of lavatories downstairs when you're B&B is quite limited. <laughs> so we would have had to take those out and suffered from guilt for years. We would have needed counselling. So, you know, but all those decisions have been taken. So we, you know, we really felt, you know, kind of like honourable for restoring the dignity of the building. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, it was good, wasn't it? It was, it was good. good that we didn't have to. Yeah. yeah. And you've got everything to B&B you'd want you've got you know your own ensuite bathrooms and yeah. all of the sort of the mod cons that people would want but then actually you've not overstepped and put in i think you said on your website there's no uh, corby trouser presses and things yeah. like that no corby trouser, no tv is the main thing and um, we so there's wi-fi and if people want to bring devices they can but if they watch stuff in their room rather than in the shared lounge because we want that to feel just you know people's take in the feeling of the room and read books and play games and sit and chat and that that sort of thing. As soon as you put on a screen in a room, it changes the whole vibe of the room and people really, really appreciate having that space to be able to relax. They mm. love it. Yeah. And that opportunity to talk to people, they meet here. You know, it's amazing how many friendships have been sparked up meeting them at the breakfast table. Yeah. You know, it's, and it, it's, it's all these secret um, airfield anoraks yeah. get together and they, they start talking about it and they don't realise there's, there's such a huge community. Yeah. And I, I include myself in the anorak, so I'm yeah. not being derogatory. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. You hear these conversations about people who've been crawling around airfields for years and, you know, sharing experiences and, you know, what they've seen and expanding each other's knowledge on the whole airfield or aviation stuff. It's just fantastic to listen to. We offer a secure space for obsessives. <laughs> they feel welcome and loved here. I'm proud to be Nanorak anyway, so exactly, exactly. I think I'd fit in quite well. Yeah, yeah. they quite often apologise when they start talking about airfields and saying, no, it's okay, yeah. you can do it, it's you okay. Do, yeah. <laughs> but that must be great for you, because obviously you know, you're really passionate about it, so you're attracting like-minded people who you, you know sit in the evening and have a chat to about you know, yeah. where they've been yeah. and what, you know, and it's good feedback for you as well. Oh, it's wonderful, absolutely wonderful. I'm, I'm writing a book about the history of the station and and our journey with the station as well, you know, our journey through the restoring the control tower. And, you know, it's a kind of a privilege that people come to you with the history. You know, you know most often, you know, my, when I was an academic, you had to go and find your research. I have it knocking at the door. It's brilliant. We you had know. a guest arrive today. Yeah. He's blown up a picture because he works in a, a little museum 
and a family had brought in an airman's logbook and photographs and information. And he noticed that he's on our roll of honour. He died from here on the 3rd of May, 1945. So it's one of the last... The last losses of Bomber Command. Yeah, yeah, of the war. So sad. It was the end of his second tour. But he's brought us a photograph of him with his name and his details. And it just... Just, and scanned his logbook for us. It's just fantastic yeah. that these yeah. things just arrive. I mean, daily we're getting emails from relatives and, mm. yeah. yeah, it's just yeah, quite a privilege. Yeah, this morning I had a letter from someone who's written up their history here as a meteorologist who works here during the war, you know, and I mean, that's just fantastic, isn't it? You know, that they never would have found us if we hadn't lived in the control tower and it, it means this piece of history won't be lost. It's It's wonderful. As you say, on a daily basis, you're getting something that, possibly would have disappeared into, you know, someone's box in, a, in an attic and then it's gone forever, whereas actually yeah. it's coming back to the airfield. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you kind of conclude it's a little heartless to chuck stuff away, but often when, you you know, a relative dies and you have a box of stuff, you have so much to deal with that the idea of trying to find out exactly what this bunch of paperwork from a place you've never heard of, what, what its relevance is, if anyone would ever be interested in, is too much when you're dealing with someone's death. But, you know, us being here gives them the option to do it because they only have to type in North Creek and we appear with our silly grinning faces and they've got someone to send it to. <laughs> you know, so it's and it's wonderful and people really do. And, and all of a sudden, very often it sparks up this interest that they didn't know they had, you know, as a possible seed and it suddenly germinates and they're fascinated by it, you know, and their only regret is they never asked about it when their relatives were alive. It's kind of. As you said, though, it's kind of like living history. Isn't it? It's once someone has got that spark, they can actually come and see where their grandparents or great-grandparents were during the war. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We do get a lot of relatives come and stay. But it's not the only reason people come to the control tower. People come to the control tower because it's lovely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Some people don't yeah. ever even talk about airfields. No, no. <laughs> we get quite a lot of our deco lovers as yeah. well. So people come because they love the period. And we get quite a few people come because there's no TVs and they love switching off. And from, vegetarians. And, and yeah, yeah, because we're also vegetarian yeah. B&B, we get quite a few vegetarian and vegan guests. But, you know, and some people just want something quirky, something different. I mean, and that's always something for us to consider that, you know, it can't be a complete homage to the Second World War. There has to be a comfortable space about it as well, you know. I'm always reminded of Basil Fawlty. You know, I mentioned the war, but I think I got away with it. You know, this is one B&B, I think, in a country where it's guaranteed the war is going to be mentioned. You know? <laughs> it's expected, isn't it? Exactly. It's, it's almost it's elephant in the room. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of like, your decoration, then, so how long has it taken you to amass what you've got now? Because it's, obviously it's a feel that all works and gels together. Well, we've been collecting for years. When we first met 20 years ago, I had a Art Echo mirror and you had an Art Echo display cabinet. And we lived in Camden then and we spent a lot of time down the market you know finding things and we were finding our style together and we were just constantly drawn to deco pieces that, that sort of simple clean lines and angular and just both thought was very beautiful it had to go up quite a significant gearage to get where we got to the control tower because we decided we were going to do everything so we started collecting in earnest but even that you know the history comes to us some of the pieces have come to us as well so mm-hmm. we'll get a phone call saying of course, something you might like. And we go and see it, and it's like a three-piece suite for 20 quid, the original 1930s, in really good condition, in a really good colour for our room. It's like, okay, that's perfect, thank you. And a neighbour was sorting out his mum and dad's house, and he said, I think we've got a dining table. I think it's your style. 
and again we had a look and it was what we use now in the b&b beautiful 1930s heels heels dining suite and sideboard and everything it was just yeah so it's but even that in itself that's an exciting part isn't it of like going around and finding the right pieces for your building yeah yeah yeah, and it then is. Yeah. the bathroom suites all came from eBay. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think yeah. we could have done it without eBay. Actually. No, we couldn't. There's no way. Yeah, they all tended to come from up north. The bathroom suites. It's it's funny. It's you know, buy on eBay and see the north. It was brilliant. You know, places I'd never considered going. It was really really interesting. Yeah, you went with a van. Yeah, a with man. a van and a man. Yeah, and in some cases, uh, the the spanner and whatever you need to dismantle it because they were still in houses. Yeah. One one suite was still in situ. My advice is always read the advert well. <laughs> yes, otherwise you end up disinstalling bathrooms and getting wet. <laughs> and getting wet, yeah. <laughs> you touched on it earlier about your your vegetarian and vegan options. So, yeah. what's the thinking behind that? That's just what you guys are into, or? Well, we've been vegetarian since we met. So, and Nigel's been vegetarian. I think he was seventeen, a long yeah. time. And yeah. so, when we were deciding to do the B and B, we toyed with the idea of it not being a vegetarian B and B, thinking about what our market might be, but. At the end of the day, I did the cooking and I, could, I couldn't I couldn't cook meat. So we decided we would run it as a vegetarian B&B. But because of that, we get quite a lot of vegan guests because they know that we'll understand that, you know, what being a vegan is. And so it's actually worked really well for yeah, us. We thought, yeah. you know, it might really affect our uh, desirability, I guess, to, to a lot of people. But most people who come here are not vegetarian and they like the breakfast. So I'm more than like them. Yeah, loads of compliments. Uh, yeah. There's loads of compliments on the breakfast, which is good because it's all local ingredients and homemade and delicious. It'd be nice to wake up in a B and B that doesn't smell of bacon in the morning as well. Well, no, that's yeah, it, yeah, that'd suit me. Yeah. I have to say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, you can't offer food that you can't taste, can you? And if if we couldn't taste it in the kitchen, then we don't really know what it's like. And no. so, yeah, serving meat was never an option for us. It's not been an issue at all. No. So. I mean, I think we probably have missed out on some guests who don't want to come for that reason, but that's okay. We've got plenty of guests. Yeah. <laughs> and there's plenty of B&Bs that serve bacon, so that's all fine. Yeah. So how many rooms have you actually got that you can... Uh, we have four on suite rooms. Yeah, so three are in the tower, and one is a suite we have outside, which is a converted building. And we live in the tower as well, of course. So we effectively have the front third of the building, and then there's um, the three rooms in there, and there's a guest lounge downstairs for them. So we've got so, the, the signals room, which is where the signal staff work. We, so we try to keep them original to their uses. And in our signals room, we have a signal that was received in that room after the first operation after D-Day, which is fantastic. The language is brilliant. Yeah. But so special to have it in there. And then we have the controller's restroom, which is where the controller had an office, the air traffic controller, and it would have had a, a day bed. But it's a bit more comfortable than that now, and it has an ensuite. <laughs> yeah. Pure decadence, yes. I tell you. The one, the one we call the boardroom is because that's where the ops board was. So that's part of the old control room that's been portioned off. And it is, yes, where they wrote up the, each of the operations. So we got a picture of this tower with somebody writing an, op- an ops in that room, which is also really special. So he was, again, standing in that room when he was writing that up. So we try and have little touches in each of the rooms. Yeah, room. we try and give the building context whenever we can, you know, so people can, if they want to, they can relate to what was happening. And, but if they don't want to, it's quite easy to ignore. So we don't yeah. thrust it at them, but it's kind of... There's a bit there. If people want to know, it's, there's always evidence around them, you know. I imagine most people do want to know. That's the, the point of coming. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even if you arrive here without any interest, there's normally a reason why you've come. We very rarely get guests that just want a room. 
they come here because they want to come to the tower. And when they generally, when they come through the door and they see that everything is deco and period and they're intrigued and they can't help themselves but start asking questions. So they normally go away interested, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. And they normally come back, which, yeah, is, which brilliant, is brilliant, brilliant for yeah. us. Yeah. It's lovely to get returning guests. So. Yeah. So how can people find out more about you and book? Have you got a website um, that we can we've got mention? A website. So uh, we mainly just do direct bookings. So it's um, Control Tower Stays, S-T-A-Y-S dot com is our website. But if you just Google North Creek Control Tower or, yeah, Norfolk Control Tower, Norfolk Control Tower. We're, we're right at the top. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then we take bookings maybe by email. We do all of that ourselves. So, yeah, you're not always talking to one of us when you're booking in. Yeah, that's fantastic. I think that's a great place to leave it there. So thank you very much for joining us. Not at all. Thank Pleasure. you. This has been a podcast from Key Aero, your aviation destination. Remember, visit www.key.aero for more of the same. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to catch up with you again soon.